for those who irritate the dirigible pilot. This is the Blackwater Evercost. Perhaps I should have known. Perhaps I did know. The ancient Navajo through the Mitchell brothers had warned me, had specifically laid out the dangers, and how to avoid them. But this is why they call me mad. If something can be done, it must be done. The curiosity, the endless hunger for knowledge, must be sated. Someday it will cause me real harm. Perhaps I should have known, should have believed the warnings. Well, now I know. In the past weeks, we have continued our journey through the desert and near-desert landscape, pausing and exploring as the whim takes us. A few days ago, we turned our path more decidedly east in preparation to part ways with Roy and his gang and increase our speed through the American plains in a return to Louisiana. Yesterday, as the declining sun crept out of the valley through which we traveled, we came upon a remarkable sight. It was one of the Puebloan cliff cities Ethan had described to me in rapturous detail, I had thought his portrayal unlikely and sensational, but the reality of it was indeed extraordinary. There was no question of trying to find a way up the cliffs in the dark, so I ordered a halt for the night, to which there was no objection. The cliff city was the first thing illuminated by the rising sun, and we thought ourselves fortunate to have noticed it the night before. Hundreds of feet above us, it would be nearly invisible from certain angles. The partly underground houses from which its habitants probably moved still existed here and there between our campsite and the cliff, largely filled in by wind-blown sand, but occasionally preserved by a surviving roof. Thanks to the intrigue offered by the city above, we passed these by with hardly a glance at first. McThomas volunteered to remain and watch over the steam car and horses. Apparently he has no love for extreme heights, where the means of access is nigh-invisible. The rest of us eagerly approached the cliff to search for the path upward. The way up was neither a stairway nor a ladder, but a badly eroded combination of both, with small perches here and there to move between one set of stairs and the next. When we reached the ledge which formed the outer rim of the town, we found it a path bounded on one side by a precipice and the other by a wall with what had to be arrow loops. This was indeed the most easily defensible place I had ever seen. But the guards are centuries dead, the gate gone before a scattered pile of debris, and we entered without challenge. However, moving within the compact little town sometimes proved a challenge. Though the larger parts of the cliffside cave system allowed for ceilings of reasonable height and even multiple stories, there were passages which edged the cliff, yet were perhaps three feet high. The enormous weight of stone above contrasted weirdly with the even deadlier open space to one side, and yet on the far side of the passage the city continued as though it were a normal thoroughfare. What strange and dangerous lives the inhabitants must have led, even retrieving food and water would have been a perilous endeavor. And yet the entirety of the place was well considered and well made, with roofs largely still intact and apparently most walls still standing. Much of the city was covered in decorative design, either engraved in the smooth mud coating of the buildings or painted in two-toned geometric designs. A granary's floor was scattered with examples of the local corn in perfect condition over six centuries after their desertion here. 
The corn cobs caused me to pause and consider the words of the Mitchell brothers regarding the history of the region. The cliff cities were built within a relatively brief period of time, but were apparently abandoned only a generation later. Decades of nearly constant intertribal warfare was thought to be the cause, but why leave such perfect answers to the situation so soon after creating them? Nathan believes that the problem may have been an unstable leadership, an elite grasping ever more tightly to its position and becoming more tyrannical as time went on. The rest of the world has certainly seen plenty of examples of such a dynamic. Why not in ancient America? The idea that everyone was always peaceful before Europeans arrived has always seemed to me the most astonishingly stupid of notions. For all the differences one can identify between one individual or group and another, humans are humans, and power struggles have existed from time immemorial. Nathan pointed out that it explained rather neatly their apparent reference to the leaders turning the warlike spirit of their tribe against their own people. It seems a lot to read into the evidence, but it does make everything fit. Ethan had no answer to that theory. After the events of the day, I can say that I think it partly correct. It wasn't long before I realized that I should have brought certain items to investigate and record the many intriguing aspects of this very unusual dwelling place. It would be irritating to attempt to describe them properly to another, so I decided to fetch them myself. Some small artifacts had been found thus far, and the excited hunt for something of value would keep the others busy in my absence. I took my own findings, including one of the ears of corn, and climbed down to the floor of the valley again. As I left, Roy tried to give me a hard time, as Americans put it. What's wrong? Tired already? Clyde snickered from behind him. I intend to visit the steam car and return straight away. My energy is hardly an issue. Clyde wandered off, calling to the others. Poor old Baron's all tuckered out. <laughs> I shook my head and reminded myself that our companies would soon be parted. Experience made the descent far faster than the ascent had been. One could imagine one of the Cliff City's residents moving along it with ease and speed, as though the vertical path were a common sidewalk. Gratified by the observation, I strode to the steam car, verified with McThomas that all was quiet at the camp, and exchanged my artifacts for the items I had come for. On my return, I noticed the group of low buildings near the path to the cliff, ignored on the way to the more glamorous mystery far above. These were the town that existed before its inhabitants moved to their aerial castle. It seemed unlikely that they would have remained entirely unused, even if no one made them their permanent dwelling. I turned aside to give them a look. The buildings were mostly underground and startlingly large inside. The first few I looked into were completely empty, even the walls bearing nothing more than the same textural decoration I had seen in their cousins far above. I had determined that the next would be the last unless it contained something of interest, and was prepared to give it only a cursory glance. Yet there, scattered around the floor, were irregular lumps that hinted strongly at things hidden beneath a layer of silt. In a moment, I had a brush from my satchel, and was removing the dirt from what was soon revealed to be bones. It looked like several human skeletons were here, lying where they died. Considering the strict burial rites of the nearby tribes, that was unusual. It made more sense when I saw that they had died violently. Whatever had happened, it was entirely savage. 
Whole sections of bodies were separate from the rest, and the marks were separated looked not like animal tooth marks, but sword cuts. In one place, a skull with the entire front removed at apparently one stroke. Yards away, its missing half, where it landed centuries before. Nothing else remained. I left the scene of ancient carnage. A few yards past the house was a building broader and taller than the others. A ramp led down to its entrance, now blocked by a tree which had once stood nearby, along with the rocks it had pulled in when it fell. Several minutes of labor later, I was able to pass through the arch and step into the gloom of a long-forgotten temple. In the center was an irregular altar, like some used by other ancient cultures. Some few feet past the altar was a statue of a huge hand. The hand was clearly meant to represent itself as merely part of a full statue, the majority of the idol extending several yards beneath the floor of its temple. It would have been absurd to actually build and then bury such a giant, but it certainly gave the impression of exactly that. It also looked as though it was made to hold the hand of a much smaller creature, a man. I, of course, recalled the Navajo petroglyph, which depicted the local chief or shaman holding a stony hand exactly like the one I now gazed upon. Part of me scoffed at the idea of placing my own hand in the statues to imitate the ceremony of old, but curiosity won out. Surely there was some secret held in the hand, some clue as to why such a simple gesture would have been so important that it could drive the intelligent and industrious creators of the Cliff City to heights of martial ferocity. My mind flickered through the possibilities, a hidden catch to release some wonder, a particular angle of viewing the room, the way the light falls on the officiant when in that position, and, honestly, what danger could a primitive partial statue hold? I stood behind the giant hand facing the altar across it, and saw myself for a moment in the role of the ancient shaman, about to call the blessing of my tribe's deity to wage war on those who stood against us. With that wild and primitive thought echoing in my head, I placed my right hand in that of the idols. Instantly, a blade of volcanic glass sprung from a tiny unseen slot and cut into the side of my hand. I yelled in surprise and pain, but resisted pulling my hand out as instinct insisted. Doing so would slice my hand still farther. However, when the blade did not retract for several seconds, I had no choice but to brace myself, grit my teeth, and pull my hand back out. Once the stony hand was empty again, the blade clicked back into its hiding place, though I was in no particular mood to examine it farther. The extreme sharpness of the obsidian blade reduced the initial pain of the cut, but it was bleeding freely and beginning to throb already. I carefully held the cut together in preparation to return to the steam car for medical attention, noting as I did my blood now dripping from the idol's hand as from my own. But before I took a step, the air within the temple began to shimmer with a strange sound. It was deep and surrounding, like the precursor to an earthquake, but of a higher pitch somehow. A moment later, the flat top of the altar suddenly split, folding back as if on hinges and spraying sand everywhere. I looked away to keep my eyes from the sand, and in that moment heard the shuddering sound change to something more clear and present. The temple wasn't creating the sound. It was muffling it. When the sand stopped falling, I looked back. 
Three of its giant coils, a monstrous corkscrew, spanned a third of the temple and reached nearly to the ceiling. Its body still rising from the altar, with the sheen of an old snake and the color of old pus and decaying wood, combined aspects of centipede and tapeworm, if either were normally two feet across. Its length had no legs, but was edged in numerous small wings resembling fish fins that rippled and flexed, making the wind and noise which now filled the structure. Its head was that of a scorpion, but with six sickle-shaped mandibles like polished ivory, and mere lumps where eyes should be. It undulated and pulsed, staring sightlessly at me for a long moment. Then it turned and swiftly flowed out the door, skimming a yard above the ground, and its eighty-foot length was suddenly gone. To hunt. Her children cajole her with the promises of seeing grandbabies frolicking in the warm sun and a fresh brine breeze. She consents because she is tired, far too tired to argue a point she has already lost. They set her up on the burning sand beneath the blue umbrella, cold lemonade in hand. Florida is different, Mom. She feels sick at the smell of spume and salt, the breeze bringing moans to her ear. She wonders if her husband had wept or cried or moaned, gargled in the water as his stiff limbs failed him. Salt water was supposed to be gargled for a sore throat. She'd had one for months after, and when her sister had made a mug of it for her, she'd sicked it up, howling, James, James, because she has tasted enough salt, and the bite of the Alaskan current has already taken a bloody piece of her soul. The lemonade sweats coldly in her hand, and the ice chimes delicately against the glass as she trembles like the bells of a chapel at a funeral with an empty casket. The burn of ice is very different from that of the sun. Her granddaughter shrieks, chest deep in the ocean, and all she can see is her young face, white and still, golden hair made ragged as seaweed beneath the surface. No, she did not like the sea, the beach. She is not fooled by its gilded sands and laughing, twinkling waves. She thinks only of James, drifting somewhere in the blue, held by it as she once held him, and the warmth of the Florida strand fades. I hurried to the steam car. The creature had not yet come here, nor damaged it. As McThomas stitched closed my hand with all the speed I could urge him to, I instructed him to remain within the car, door locked and window shields down. No exceptions, no just to look, no headstrong Highland notions. I had to find a way to dismiss this thing I had summoned before it destroyed us all. As I ran to the cliff stairway and began climbing, I wondered how I would stop a creature I knew nothing about. Immediately, a different part of my brain scolded me for dodging the truth. I knew exactly what this creature was, and where it came from, if not the specifics and the origin, at least enough of its history and habits to know what I was dealing with. The archaeologists and I had been entirely wrong about the pictographs. There was no metaphor. There was no warlike side of the people. There was only a warning, and a monster. After a couple of hundred feet of mad vertical scramble, I paused for breath on one of the tiny ledges. 
I looked down and saw the thing ripple out of a pit house on the far side of the canyon settlement. It cast about briefly, apparently having investigated all of the structures there, before homing in on the steam car, perhaps sensing life inside. As I watched from far above, the creature ran around the outside of the machine, looking for an entry. When it brushed against steel, the razor edge of its wings drew sparks. Finally, it pulled away in frustration, and rammed the side with its multi-tusked head. It reared back and rammed it again and again. It stopped finally and turned away. I could see the dent from my perch. One of the creature's mandibles had broken off and jutted from the steam car's side. I was wondering where it would go next when I suddenly noticed it was making its way toward the bottom of the cliff beneath me. It looked like time to resume my ascent, and with all speed. When I reached the top, I looked down to see the creature climbing the same path I had taken. It seemed that even though it somehow traveled above the ground, it wasn't capable of actual flight. If such a monster regularly hunted the Anasazi, their move up the cliff made perfect sense. The ladder was probably designed to prevent, or at least delay its ascent, making use of its few limitations. I hesitated to think what would happen to anyone who fell into its power. Again, I checked myself. I had seen the results with my own eyes. I pressed my climb even faster, heedless of safety. At the top, I sprinted along the entry ledge and through the open gateway, shouting for anyone who could hear. The settlement is not very large, and when needful, I am not very quiet, so most or all of them heard me, and some responded to my unusual urgency. Quick, I said, block the gateway! The creature they warned us of has arrived! There was some skepticism, though my people of course began to gather debris as ordered. The robbers looked askance at my instruction until they looked down the cliff. Then they exerted themselves as I had never seen before. Roy's fear was transformed by his natural belligerence into anger. It's arrived, has it? I wondered just how that happened. I ignored him and piled rocks with all speed, though I could feel his glare upon me now and again. The moment the entry was blocked, as though by some unseen signal everyone scattered into the cliff city's maze of buildings and caves. For my part, I retreated to the arrow loops that overlooked the entryway and kept a watch for the creature's arrival. It soon picked its way to the top of the stair. Without hesitation, it flowed to the blocked gate and flung itself against it. After several fruitless attempts, it backed up and turned toward an arrow loop, the one through which I was watching. Though it had no eyes, I could feel its malevolent gaze. I startled back a step. Its five remaining mandibles moved, as though talking, as though hungry, as though desperate to fulfill its fell mission. The enormity of what I was looking upon suddenly hit me. This thing, mere feet from my face, close enough to touch, was so entirely alien to my existence, to my frame of thought, and yet so undeniably present, I felt a twist, as though trying to dodge. Yet there it was. There it was. And as much as anyone likes to believe they would be unaffected by such a thing, except for an obvious and reasonable reaction of fear and horror, I promise you that the truth of the matter is far worse. My mind shifted and slipped in a strange direction. My grasp on the world teetered as though caught in the wind at the edge of the cliff city's precipice. Whatever the effect on my mind, my body obeyed its impulse to flee. I soon arrived in an empty room, a modest living space on the second floor of one of the buildings. I paused to gather my senses and chastise myself for acting like a startled rabbit. 
However awesome and terrifying the nature of the creature outside, it was nevertheless a creature and must be dealt with like any other opponent. It would have helped greatly to have any idea of a weakness in the thing. Think, think. Rein your disordered wits and analyze the problem. What do I actually know? The blade trap in the temple fairly clearly summoned it, or at least released the lock on the altar's trap door. I had no idea how to force it to return. It traveled without touching the ground, but could not seem to actually fly. Its wings appeared meant to propel the thing, and were dangerous weapons as well. It could perceive as though seeing, even without visible eyes. Its mandibles were indeed dangerous, but could be broken with sufficient force. For example, the strength of the creature itself repeatedly striking steel plate. I was unsure we had anything at all that could even dimly approach that. Some of the boulders that clung to the walls and ceiling of the cave system might serve, though. Timing would have to be precise. My thoughts were interrupted by the sound of shouting from outside. I ran up the room stairway to the roof and looked down onto the area just inside the gateway. Clyde was trying to climb the pile of debris as Fabrice tried to prevent him. I gotta go! I gotta go to it! Let me go! What are you thinking? That'll make it the end of us. Leo, stupid! Can't you hear it? It's calling! I gotta go! Frustrated at Fabrice's success at slowing him, Clyde turned and kicked her in the chest. She fell heavily at the base of the pile, gasping for air. Without looking back, Clyde clambered to the top and began manically pulling the wood and rocks aside. He would have space to get out soon, and space for the creature to enter, not long after. Fabrice got to her feet and ran down the path opposite my perch. Only a few seconds after she had gone, Clyde's goal was achieved. As soon as he had opened a wide ribbon of opening, tall enough for the creature's body, he laid on his side and rolled through it. I heard his joyous shouts for a moment, before they turned to anguished screams. In the sudden silence that followed, the creature entered the city, wings shimmering, mandibles now a bright red. Alonso must have been hiding near the entry plaza, and was flushed from his place by the horror of what came through the gateway. I saw him dashing through the narrow lanes from that area, and to my alarm, he darted into the very building I crouched atop. The creature was honing in on him already, and reached the doorway only moments after Alonso had entered. Sweating and panting, the man raced up the stairs to the roof, then halted before me, a look of wild panic in his eyes. We could clearly hear the weird, shuddering thrum of the approaching creature. Desperate cunning showed on the bandit's face, and the moment the creature appeared in the stairwell, he shouted, Yalo! grabbed my lapels and spun me around himself to launch me backward toward the thing. I missed the stairwell, and found myself barely balanced on the edge of the building. I had almost regained my footing when the brick beneath me crumbled. The last I saw of the rooftop was an instant in which Alonzo and the creature, both nearly motionless, stared into each other's faces. In the next instant, I landed on the roof of the first floor, twisting my ankle and injuring my left arm badly enough that it will be useless for some days. A brief cry from above, terminating in a strangled gurgle, suggested that I had got away lightly. The creature might soon descend, and I realized that if it could make the leap to the first story's roof more gracefully than I, it would behoove me to be gone first. I limped to the crumbling wall next to the building's doorway and began to climb down before realizing that I could fairly easily push it over to perhaps block the door should the thing return the way it came. I did so with all haste and was rewarded by the annoyed droning on the other side of the rubble. The entry was not completely blocked, 
but I turned my head rather than face the mind-bending creature directly and hobbled as quickly as I could from the area. Searching for the rest of my people, I found Zeke and Harvey hiding in a building, quietly arguing about what to do. They startled when I entered the room, relieved to see the intruder was merely human. I asked if anyone had gone to the part of the city past the terrifying crawlway, and their expressions told me that they hadn't thought of it, they didn't know if anyone had, and that they thought it was a good idea. With constant whispers that echoed in the narrow streets, the robbers hurried along, wondering aloud if they were going in the right direction. They paid no attention to me whatever, and were soon some distance ahead, my ankle preventing anything like a running speed. In a minute or so, I saw that the path to the crawlway was to the left, but my furtive calls to the other two went unnoticed. A moment later, I was glad to be left behind. The creature appeared around the corner ahead of the pair. I leapt aside and watched from behind a partly fallen wall. They instantly reversed direction, Harvey turning and running, Zeke drawing his pistol and firing at the thing. I'm fairly sure at least one of the shots hit. The thrumming got much louder for a moment, and the creature whipped past and around Zeke, slicing through him with its wings so quickly that he made no sound but fell where he stood. Harvey, running toward me, suddenly stopped. His eyes widened in confusion, and his body turned to face the creature, as if he had no control over it. It approached him and hovered, looking down at his upturned face. But instead of attacking, it merely floated there. I heard Harvey's voice talking to it. Oh, well, thank you. It's, it's beautiful. Then he turned and sat on some rubble, looking thoughtful. The creature returned to its search from the direction it had come. Without further hesitation, I went to the crawlway to the other part of the city. Moving through a tunnel perhaps three feet tall is difficult under normal circumstances. Injuries to arm and ankle greatly complicate the process. However, when compared to the creature hunting me, the vast and deadly open space to my right held no terror. Ignoring the pain, I got through it as quickly as I could. As I stood up on the other side, a powerful fist struck my face, and I unwillingly returned to the ground. I shook my head to find my senses while Roy's voice berated me from above. You're so fancy, so all-knowing, so in charge of everything. Couldn't turn my gang against me, so you had to go and get some monster to kill you, me, and everyone. And that's what's going to happen, you overdressed greenhorn. Why do you think I could have brought it here? He gave my ribs a savage kick. Nothing was broken, but I now wear an impressive bruise. Standing on my side, I saw Mac holding back a murderous-looking Wellesley, King, and Fabrice with his revolver. Don't give me that. I know you're kind. If you can't rule, you'll burn it all down. Well, I got news for you. I know these engine stories. Grew up with them. Way to get rid of a monster is to give it what it came for. And that'd be you, Lord Fancy Pants. You got my brother killed, so it's the least I can do. But he's not. I was interrupted by another kick, and then felt myself dragged toward the center of the open area. At that moment, the creature's droning, always echoing from somewhere in the cliff city, gained a louder and more present tone. It had found the little tunnel and was coming through it. Mac involuntarily turned to look toward the tunnel, and in that moment the others pounced, Wellesley and Fabrice tackling him to the ground. 
King ran forward to help me to my feet, but the creature arrived at the same time, rearing up cobra-like just inside the chamber. King let go of my arm and stood, looking up at the thing. After a pair of seconds that seemed like minutes, the creature... It sounds surreal, but I swear to you, it looked like the creature bowed to Mr. King. Then it made a rolling spin and knocked the man across the room. With a yell, King disappeared over the edge of the cliff. Wellesley sprinted to the edge and grasped him, where he apparently clung to the side. Fabrice ran to help. I moved with all haste away from the creature and toward my people. Roy was also backing away, pistol drawn but held limply, the horror of facing the thing having seized his mind. He reached the stunned and silent Mac and shoved the other robber mightily toward the alien beast. Hobbling away as quickly as I could, I did not see the result, but heard the rending sound and felt a warm spray across my back. Roy fired twice at the creature, then emptied the rest of his pistol into it. At that range he could not have missed, and indeed when I turned I saw a smoking deep green ichor oozing from the places it had been struck. It gave no other indication of having been hit. You damn fool! You've killed us all! The creature plunged its five mandibles into Roy's chest, then with a lightning-fast motion pulled them out and spun around him. Roy fell in three parts. The thing turned toward our edge of the area, where King had been recovered and now lay, shaking, Fabrice and Wellesley keeping him from the cliff. Between the creature and them stood a battered scientist, mind still reeling and senses swimming slightly. None of what had happened made any sense to the world as I know it, and the urge to flee from reason itself was strong. Nevertheless, I could not flee the unearthly thing before me. Only defiance remained. I drew myself up and extended my less injured hand in a gesture I hoped it would recognize as halt. You are done here, creature. Be gone to the place whence you came. I sincerely doubt that it understood my words but it flowed closer on its strange wings, the thrum of its wings pulsing through my body. Sightlessly, it stared at me. I held still and held my ground. The cut on my hand had reopened, and the blood dripped from it, mirrored in the dripping from the creature's mandibles. After a long moment, it moved backward, lowered to again resemble a monstrous flying centipede, and left through the little tunnel. Before we gathered ourselves to descend again, collecting a still-dazed Harvey on the way, I looked into the canyon to see the creature enter the temple and resume its centuries-long sleep, waiting until it is summoned again to hunt. Blackwater Apicast is written, produced, and performed by Nicholas Jovian. Additional voices by Kayla Thomas. Beginning and ending music is by Derek and Brandon Fichter. They can be found at dbfichter.bandcamp.com. Today's entertainment was Widowed Woman by the Sea by Elise Andonian. Be sure to subscribe to the Apicast and send your friends to lordblackwater.com so they can too. Also, visit lordblackwater.com to be the featured entertainment. And thanks for listening. River Fabrice says, Hey up!